Father, we're standing together today to worship you, the living God, declaring that you are holy, you are set apart. You are unmatched in any way because you are King of kings, you're the Lord of lords. And we have the privilege of coming into your presence and worshiping you and praising you. And Father, I just pray that as we do that, all of the things that we carried in with us, all the, the hassles, the, the issues that we count as so important, would just fade in comparison to the reality and the, and the size and the strength and the faithfulness and the love of you, the living God. That you would build us up in that and those facts. Father, I just pray that you, by your grace, would change us today, not only by your presence as we've been here, but also, Lord, as we move into looking at your word. Father, your word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use it just not to inform our minds, but also to transform our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Just seeing who, who made it because of the time change of this. Now, next week is a time change, um, daylight savings time. So just, just be aware of that. I'll, we'll talk more about that later. Um, we, we put in the bulletin, I just want to call your attention in the, into our program, um, our second value statement. And I just want to call your attention to it. We're putting in one a month as a, as a, a reminder of what our values are. Our vision statement is love God, love people, and be transformed. And... This month, we're looking at the value statement number two, which is the Word of God. And I want to read that with you, if we could. We believe the Bible is the infallible Word of God, inerrant in the original writings, and is our standard for faith and practice. As such, it is to be communicated in relevant form, informing our entire lives, governing our relationship with God and others. It is both informative and transformative. The word is at the center of everything we do, whether it's kid zone or, or student ministries, connect groups, all of that, it's at the center. And one of the things, um, uh, I, I want you to know the distinction because sometimes uh, people haven't thought about the distinction. Um, some preach the word of God or they use the word of God in their messages. So in other words, they take a topic and then they take uh, scripture and they put it in and that, and that can be valid, etc. Uh, what we do most often here is we preach the Word of God. We let the Word of God be the starting point of where we go with that. So it's rather than taking the Word of God and plugging it into a message, we start with the Word of God and let the message flow out of that. And that's more what's called expository um, or exegetical preaching. And uh, that's what we do and we believe that uh, it's important that we listen to the Word of God. Can, can, we, um, can we thank the worship team? Can we just do that? I just want to thank the worship team. They spend a lot of time every week uh, preparing and rehearsing, and sometimes I'll just come in here Wednesday during rehearsal and just stand in the back or sit in the back and worship because they're up here worshiping. And they're not here to entertain or to, you're not the audience and they're the performers. God is our audience and they're there to help us understand how to worship and to worship God. And so um, then they do this consistently, all volunteers, and I just want to thank them for the time that they put in because it really 
makes a huge difference in my life personally and I know in yours as well. America is in crisis today. Never before in the history of this nation, with the exception of the time of the Civil War, has our country been so polarized. Even though our nation is a melting pot, it's a tossed salad or mixture of races, ethnic groups, and religions, we are increasingly being divided into two major dominant groups of people. Two belief systems, two sets of morals, two sets of values, and two sets of ethics. Each is set in direct opposition to each other. This polarization and division in our country is, is expressed primarily in political terms of the progressive left and the conservative right. But really, these two dominant groups are fundamentally the new secular society and the religious community which supports Judeo-Christian values. And the battle over these values has increasingly taken over our political and election system dominating our last three presidential elections, at least. It dominates the battles for the nomination and confirmation of our Supreme Court justices. The battle over values has forced people to choose between us and them. Now, we cannot be simplistic, and everything is not black and white, okay? And this is not a political discourse. But we're seeing a division, a battle that has existed for, for centuries. It has waxed and waned over the years and in many countries and many different geographic locations over history. But the most visible and recent battleground is America. It's America. The battle between good and evil, between right and wrong, between truth and falsehood. What is moral and what is immoral? Is there right and is there wrong? There's a huge battle over values, right and wrong, a huge battle over truth, just truth. Speaking of an address by Oprah Winfrey, who stated as she talked to her audience, she said, you have your truth, your truth. And commentator Ben Stein says, no, there's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There are only facts and our opinion about those facts. Let me say that again. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There are only facts in our opinion about those facts. But everybody asks, whose truth, whose values, whose morality, whose justice? Not which truth or which values or which morality. When we ask whose truth and whose values and whose morality, we lose our entire sense of objectivity. Our culture treats someone's belief that sex before marriage or same-sex marriage is wrong on the same level as one's enthusiasm for the Green Bay Packers or one's unaccountable taste for broccoli. Everybody chooses their own morality, their own right and their own wrong. All actions, therefore, are equally acceptable and we are supposed to treat all sin fairly. You carry that to its ultimate conclusion, uh, and child molesters can unite and say, treat us fairly, we are just making our individual choice for right and wrong. Or axe murderers will say, we do it better, the axe is where it's at. Well, ridiculous, of course it is. But where did all of this start? It really started in the Garden of Eden, but let's get more recent, let's get more recent. In America, they'd all start in the 1970s in our elementary schools. 
It was here and then that a, a program was instituted called Values Clarification. Some of you know. And remember, Values Clarification. Values Clarification was the attempt to teach the process of evaluating without communicating the content of any value system. After the disintegration of morals in the 60s, we thought we could never have a unified moral vision for our country, so children were told to trust in their conscience and decide right and wrong for themselves. Teachers refused to teach right and wrong, and those who dared make moral valuations were quickly censured or even fired. We moved from what values to whose values from which truth to whose truth, from what moral right to whose morality, and don't dare impose your morality on anyone else. At the same time, our liberal seminaries and Christian universities were undermining our belief in the authoritative word of God, the Bible, which declares and teaches truth, morality, right, and wrong. And really, they were asking the same question that Satan asked Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Did God really say? So where do we go to discover the truth about values and right and wrong and morality, about truth itself? Who do we listen to today? Who do we listen to? We're going to return today to the book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. Our series, The Church That Never Was, The Church That Can Be. Paul has some very relevant things to say to us today. And I, as we look at wisdom or foolishness, wisdom or foolishness, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. It's on page 924, if you want to look at it in the rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to overlap one verse that we read last week, verse 17. We're going to start at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And, but to those to whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Last week we talked about divisions in the church. Church in Corinth had only four main divisions, four main groups. You say only four, that's not bad. But basically we learned how, how do divisions come about? How do we, how do we deal with them? How, how do we prevent or deal with divisions? If you, if you weren't here um, so there was a big snow thing last week. If you weren't here, uh, please go online. You go to our ecwesleyan.net and listen to last week's message. Critical that you listen to the series to get all of these parts if possible. Today we're going to look at some of the underlying causes that had crept into the church at Corinth that precipitated divisions. 
The polarization, tearing the church community apart. The then, and then we're going to look at the now. And we're going to contrast two ways of thinking. Two ways of thinking. Two wisdoms, two wisdoms in how they differ. Human wisdom and God's wisdom. Human wisdom and God's wisdom. So let's start with human wisdom. Number one, human wisdom. How we think profoundly affects how we act. And Paul draws a solid line here right at the beginning. He's uncompromising. There are two groups. Two groups, only two. The two groups formerly were Jews and Gentiles. They were the chosen people of God and and the heathens. Now it is, as he states it, us who are being saved and those who are perishing. Us who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those who are in Jesus Christ are those who are being saved. And those without Jesus Christ are those who are perishing. This has to do with eternal destiny. The lost and the saved. Jesus articulated in his own words that he came to save the lost. God cared so much about human beings that he sent Jesus to die so that he could restore that relationship with God. And when you don't have a relationship with Jesus or with God, he called you lost. He said, that means you are perishing. Because of this incredible love for people, he wants them found or restored to relationship with God. Now, it doesn't sound politically correct. I know this. It doesn't sound politically correct to say some are perishing and some are being saved. Or some are going to heaven and some are going to hell. But it's truth. It's truth. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There's two, two roads there. There's perish and there's eternal life. There's heaven and there's hell. Now, we're not to be the judge of who is and who isn't saved, who's going to heaven and who's hell. That's, not, that's God's job. That's not our job. But we must embrace and speak truth. We must speak truth. My motto in life is speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Now, we can speak the truth with love or without love. But we can never love without speaking truth. Let me say that again. We can speak truth with love or without love, but we can never love without speaking the truth. If we truly love, we will speak truth. Most of us are very uncomfortable with dealing with or speaking this truth because we don't like the thoughts of exclusivism or rigidity in our belief system. Let me tell you something. If you say you follow Jesus, get over it. Jesus left no choice. There is right and there's wrong and there's truth. There are those going to heaven and there are those going to hell. Jesus spent more time warning about hell, the dangers of hell, than he did talking about heaven. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's, that's as exclusive as you get. And if we believe and follow Jesus and his teachings, we believe that Jesus is the only way. Jesus also said there were two roads, not three or four or 27. In Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Those are those that are perishing. 
But small, he says, is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it, those who are being saved. Two, two roads, two paths, two destinations, two destinations. Yogi Berra famously said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. And of course, he said some amazing things. That was one of them. And that's how many people approach life. It really doesn't matter which road I take, which religion, which belief, which faith. But if you are standing at the crossroad, a fork in the road, and somebody asks for directions, and you know that this road is going to take you over a cliff into certain death, and this one will take you to safety over a bridge, what are you going to do? Well, it depends. Some prefer one over the other. It's a subjective decision. No, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal destiny. And we must tell them that this road leads to death, this road leads to life. There are two roads, two destinations. Tell them. One of the greatest men who ever lived passed away today, Dr. Billy Graham. I met Dr. Graham once. I was 19 years old. It was at Expo 72 in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl, and it was backstage before he went on to preach. And he came up to me and shook my hand, introduced himself. I knew who he was. <laughs> he looked at me with those piercing blue eyes and saw right through me, saw my soul. It was like, it was amazing. And then Billy Graham went out on the stage. Went on the stage and gave this uncompromising message. He said... There are two roads. There are two destinations. He said, all of us were on the wrong road destined for hell and Jesus came to save us so we could go to heaven. His message never changed. It never changed. The warning about danger was always rooted in deep love and concern for the destiny of every individual that heard his voice. Perishing? We're being saved. John 3.18, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come here to condemn us and make us feel bad, but to save the world through him. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has the life. He who has Jesus. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There are those who are saved and those who are perishing. Now, we, we must embrace that truth ourselves, but we also can tell people in a nice way, in love and concern. But just like Paul, these words seem like foolishness to people. Foolishness. It's the message of the cross. And it's foolishness to people who are on the wrong road. Now, why did it seem foolish to the Jews and Greeks in Corinth? Why, why was this? Well, let's start by looking at human wisdom. We'll look at then and we'll look at now. But human wisdom for the Jews, the Jews were looking for an answer to their problems. What was their problem? Their problem was Rome. Rome, the Roman Empire taking control of Palestine. That was their homeland. They were enslaved and in subjugation to foreign power. There was a loss of freedom. They were unable to control their destiny. And so the Jews were looking for power. They were looking for power. Their Messiah was to be a political deliverer. He was to come and set them free politically. The Messiah, according to their understanding, was to set up his kingdom, just like many countries today looking for that benevolent leader, their savior, someone that would solve all their problems. 
We look at our governors and presidents and people and say, if we only get the right, no, it's not going to matter. Just like many countries today. But Paul is preaching something very foolish to them. He said the Messiah was to be crucified or killed. He says, it's the cross. But see, the cross just didn't make sense. This idea didn't fit their theology, didn't square with their concept of God. From human understanding, the term Christ crucified or Messiah crucified is a contradiction in terms because Messiah was ruler, Messiah was this, political savior. Messiah meant power, splendor, and triumph. Crucifixion meant weakness, humiliation, and defeat. So the, the cross sounded foolish to them. I said, this is crazy. So the cross was a stumbling block. The cross was a stumbling block to the Jews, and they rejected the cross. We're not usually very comfortable with the cross either. We celebrate communion regularly. We have Good Friday services to remember. But what we really like is the resurrection. The resurrection, the victory. And that is part of the event, but before the resurrection must come the cross. We don't always like the cross, and we have crosses. You know, we have crosses here. We have them in the windows. We have them on our lights. We have a lot. You know, we, it's like we celebrate the cross, but we're not sure we're comfortable with that. The Old Testament idea was that God poured his blessings on those who did good. He sent judgment on those who did evil. And the cross signified that someone is under a curse. Aren't we under a blessing? The cross was used to execute criminals, and the Jews stumbled over that. They practice some of the same idolatry we do today, that God fits in our box, God exists for me, this cross stuff is too weird. We don't want to talk about the bloodshed or the dying for my sins. Let's talk about baby Jesus, Jesus' teachings on love, Jesus' miracles, his healings, the nice, gentle Jesus. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus came to die for you. It's a stumbling block. He didn't didn't compute. Then there were the Greeks. Some of us would identify more with the Greeks. They were looking for wisdom or reason. Wisdom or reason. They were in this world of intellectual thought and reason. No hint of faith in a God that worked in history, a God that got involved with them. Two reasons. The Greek idea was the first characteristic of God was described by apatheia. It means more than apathy. It means total inability to feel. And the idea was that if God could feel sorrow, joy, all the feelings that humans feel, then man would be more powerful than God because you could make him do whatever you wanted him to. And they said God has to be incapable of feeling. And, and Plutarch said that it was an insult, insult to God to involve himself in human affairs. And therefore, God was, was ultimately detached. The idea of an incarnation of God becoming man was revolting. So to them also, the cross was foolishness. The cross was foolishness. We, we kind of want a God who fits into our box of understanding. We don't understand the crucifixion. How can one man die for the sins of the whole world? Power says no, reason says no. So we create our own 21st century religion. And we call it Christianity at times. That was then. What about now? What about now? What are our solutions today? What are the solutions? We've got all this stuff happening in our world today. What are, what are our solutions? What about America? What do we look for for the solution to our problems? The cross? 
eh, that's kind of weird. We want power and we want reason. What does our human reason suggest are answers? We just had schools, a school shooting in Florida. The immediate answer, of course, the reason says gun controller, fewer and less dangerous guns. Since when are guns more or less dangerous? I don't know, but that's, that's another thing. Human wisdom cries out for gun control, stricter background checks, outlying bump stocks, arming school staff and teachers, raise the minimum age to purchase a gun, and we go through all these solutions that we come with reason. They are reason and power. And only few, very few, have the courage or the understanding to go past this to look at the true problem which is the human heart. It's the evil, the evil. And the problem doesn't lie with some external thing that we blame. The problem lies with the results of evil and and in many ways the breakdown of families and, and fatherlessness. Somebody finally got to the family breakdown of fatherlessness, but it goes deeper than that because it goes to the human nature, the human being. Humanism and reason removes us from the human nature problem. That is why Jesus died. That is the why of the cross. The Jews were looking for power. The Greeks were looking for reason. Reason. What do we propose as answers? What's the solution? We have a problem. What do we do? Education. Problem with drugs, drug education. We have AIDS and STDs, a solution education. Crime, education. We have the same problem, the Greeks did. Human wisdom, reason, education is the answer to every problem. And you know, I'm all for good education. I'm all for good education. But without the foundation of, of truth and understanding, we end up with all kinds of crazy solutions. There, one of the scientists, there, there's a scientist that was produced by our education system. He wrote an article in U.S. News and World Report a few years back. He's talking about whales. This is a scientist of repute. And he, I, I'm going to quote him. He says, at the same time, researchers are also finding that whales are one of evolution's true success stories. Natural masterpieces that until mankind came along thrived in the sea for more than 30 million years. Said scientists trace whales' origin to a wolf-sized creature that 50 million years ago tested the waters by wetting its hooves and then began foraging at sea. Eons of life in the ocean streamlined this mammal into flippers smoothing the way for hind legs and fur. Be careful when you go swimming, you might sprout flippers, just saying. Now, he says, these sleek nomads roam around an ocean basin as if it were in their backyard, migrating thousands of miles. He talks about that. And he says, you don't have to attribute superhuman qualities to whales to find them magnificent. It's Scott Krauss, a scientist with the New England Aquarium in Boston. That's the wisdom of man. Our educational system produced that. Scientists. Just, just, just saying, okay? Looking for a reason. Maybe the answer is technology. Technology, with technology we have power. With a tap on a screen you can order, have delivered right to your door groceries, take out food, cosmetics, furniture, clothes, prescriptions, just about anything you want, sometimes in less than an hour. Amazon is now delivering some things to our doorstep via drones. Amazing, technology. 
So he answered everything. When we were in Phoenix two weeks ago, all around uh, Arizona State University in Tempe were self-driving cars. You can see them because they're, they're pe they have two people sitting in the front seat and they're not doing anything. And on top you see this, this rotating thing that goes up and it's a self-driving car. They're experimenting with them. Still in development, but technology promises self-driving cars for the elderly, the young, the alcohol impaired, I assume. No designated drivers necessary. No more accidents. It's the answer to everything. Technology. Now there's stem cell research in dentistry in Israel that, that can grow your own tissue so you don't have to have a root canal. It'll fix itself or cavities. Technology, answering everything. Technology, that's why everyone with a smartphone has now found meaningful community and love online. She answered everything. <laughs> then there's politics or power. Politics or power, number three. Everybody was looking to the outcome of our last presidential election as a key to America's future. And when you look at the direction we're going, it looks promising if you agree with the changes. But government and politics are not the answer to the nation's problems. There's still something rooted. We can pass laws, we can have policies, we can, we can arm teachers, we can, do, we can do all kinds of things, but the problem is not out there. That's reason, that's power. That's what the Jews were looking for, that's what the Greeks were looking for. Sometimes people look for social engineering number four. But the biggest problem, the issue is internal. It's the human heart, it's the human heart. Verse 20 says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, the, of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. What was that foolishness of being preached? The cross, the cross. See, we're fighting the symptoms, not the disease. All our solutions of power, politics, reason, and wisdom do not address the real issue. We have a heart problem. And, and just like Billy Graham says, it's all inclusive. We, we all have it. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's something all of us have. All of us have this issue inside of us. There's no room for pride or arrogance or pointing fingers or anything. We all, we all need to be saved. We all need a heart change. It's a heart problem. It says the wages of Sin is death or separation from God. So we have something inside of our nature. It's called sin, doing things against what God has, has commanded. We have a sin problem, a problem with sin. And one of, the, one of the things that we do and we've done for centuries and we keep doing it, keep making this mistakes, is something called the normalization of sin. Normalization of sin. Actions once unthinkable gradually gain acceptance and become the norm. Let me say that again. Actions once unthinkable gradually gain acceptance and become the norm. And if you watch history, watch the last 50, 60 years, you can see the trend very, very obviously. Start with, say, premarital sex. In the 40s and 50s, Hollywood portrayed it, and we watched premarital sex. They didn't show anything. It was just in the storyline so you knew they slept together. And soon it became normal and it became mainstream. Then there was extramarital sex. Again, Hollywood portrayed it. We watched affairs both in acting roles and in real life. And soon it became normal and became mainstream. Then there was no-fault divorce. 
Hollywood practiced it, divorce for any reason. It was easy, no stigma attached, no strings attached. And we followed and soon it became normal and became mainstream. Then there's cohabitation, living together, not married. Sleeping together. And we watched it and we accepted it. We, we saw nice movies like You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, all American actors who are living with somebody else until they meet and then they come together and live happily ever after. Christians today cohabit and live together outside of marriage and think nothing of it, nothing of it. Soon it becomes normal, mainstream. In 1985, I was in Seattle, I was asked to perform a wedding. When I do a wedding, I require premarital counseling. The couple that came in that wanted to be married, they, they, they weren't professing Christians, they were, were not in church, they just wanted to find a church to get married at, so they came in. And uh, they were living together and sleeping together. As I did and still do for all couple, couples considering marriage, I required them to physically separate. I told them they needed to be in separate residences and quit sleeping together and ask for forgiveness from each other for violating, violating one another's purity and stay physically chaste until after the wedding. It's a very interesting reaction. I've had that same conversation with Christian couples and they've gotten mad and stormed out. This couple said, wow, I never realized that before. Said everybody else is living together, sleeping together. We just thought, we, we felt wrong about it, but we weren't sure why. And they thanked me for it. And when they got married, it was like a fresh start for them. Gradualism, gradualism. How about homosexuality? Starts with jokes and light-hearted humor. It trends and then Hollywood portrays it as normal. We poke fun at it, we laugh at it. Slowly it's accepted and soon it's normal and then it's mainstream. The next logical step as we've seen is same-sex marriage, then gender confusion. Some government agencies have now identified over 70 possible gender identifications, 70. It started a long time ago with the normalization of sin. See, Satan is a gradualist. Satan is, he, he knows we wouldn't accept the end result the way it is. So he makes it incremental, he gradualistic. He's an incrementalist gradualist. Slowly, a normalization of sin, we adopt it. Normalization of sin becomes forced acceptance of sin. That's human wisdom. That's where the intellect and the reason, that's we do it. So what do we do? What do we do? We have to turn to number two to God's wisdom. God's wisdom. And what is God's wisdom? It's the cross. The cross. The changes needed are so drastic that only the cross, only death, can solve the human heart problem. What happened at the cross? What happened at the cross? First, Jesus died to pay for our sins. We, we would have to pay for him, and he died so we wouldn't have to. He died to pay for our sins, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say you gotta come and get your act together and get perfect. He said, while you're still sinners, I'm gonna die for you. That's the cross. Secondly, Jesus died so he can forgive our sins. Our sins are paid for by that sacrifice. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Again, it's the heart problem. Jesus took away the penalty 
the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay the penalty if we accept his gift of forgiveness. And then Jesus took away the guilt of sin, the guilt of sin. Not just guilt feelings. We can feel guilty about something, but he took away the real guilt so we didn't have to pay. How do we deal with our sin problem? The cross. The cross. At the cross, let her see Jesus kills self and selfishness. Jesus kills self and selfishness. This sounds really radical. It is, and it needs to be. I sat talking with a, I shared not long ago, about a, a man who was having issues with his marriage, and he said, I just can't be unselfish. And I said, yeah, you need the cross. He needed to have that selflessness. He needed to have that self-crucified so he could be self, selfless instead of selfish. Romans 6.6 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified in him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My self is crucified at the cross. Therefore, Jesus' death took away the power of sin. The power of sin. Sin has power over us. Addictions, lust, temptation, all that power is broken at the cross. Dying to self. And at the cross, letter D, Jesus empowers for change. Powers for change. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared their humanity so that by his death he might destroy the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Setting us free, Jesus' death took away the presence, the presence of sin. No more bondage. Now, all this cross and death stuff sounds foolish to the human mind. Who can figure it out? But it is truth and its power, God's truth and God's power. And finally, at the cross, letter E, Jesus gives new life. Life through death? Yes, life through the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Verse 17, we read it in the first verse. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If we try to speak with human wisdom and reason and try to rationalize or make this all acceptable, it drains the cross of Christ of the power to transform our lives. Now this is foolishness to those who are perishing. But this is the power of God to those who are being saved. Where are you today? Where are you today? Which road, which journey, which path? The cross didn't display Jesus' weakness, but his selflessness. Jesus died of his own free will, laid down his life for you. 
There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance or self-sufficiency. There's no room for our own wisdom. There's only room at the cross to die to self in order to live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts and that we might see in a new way that many of the solutions that human reason bring to the table, just, they just don't work. Because the, the issue is our heart and you desire to change our heart. And that happens as we allow self to be crucified at the cross. And Father, even though we don't understand all of that, I pray that we would, without human reason, submit to you and that we would, Lord Jesus, open our hearts and give ourselves to Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we? May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm dismissed.